Hey friend, are you struggling to find consistent paid speaking gigs? Do you want to know the exact six steps that you can take to find and book more paid speaking opportunities in 2024? Well, we want to make that easy for you. We've created a new free resource with the help of Dan Irvin, one of our highly successful speakers on our team. Dan has booked over $100,000 in paid speaking gigs in the last few years, and his six-step process is going to help you maximize your chances of getting booked and paid to speak in any industry. You're going to learn how to get started prospecting, master discovery calls, and proposal emails and so much more. All you got to do is go to thespeakerlab.com slash steps and we're going to send you this 18-page guide straight to your inbox. Again, that is thespeakerlab.com slash steps and you're going to get that free guide. Hey, thanks for listening. You're awesome. What is up, my friends? Welcome back to the Speaker Lab Podcast. My name is Grant Baldwin. Good to have you here with us today. Hope life is treating you good. We are uh, here in the U.S. at least as of yesterday. We celebrated our Independence Day, 4th of July, where we blow stuff up and waste stupid amounts of money blowing stuff up. And um, I don't know. Yeah, whatever. Anyway, I know my family and I, we had a good time. I hope you had a good time. Hope you were safe. Hope you didn't blow anything up that you shouldn't have. Anyway, let's get into today's episode. Today, we got a great episode. We got a uh, conversation with my buddy, Scott Stratton. Scott is a uh, speaker, does a lot in the corporate world, has been speaking for many, many years, best-selling author of the book Unmarketing, a couple other books we touch on as well, but just all around cool dude. And uh, so we, we talk a lot about how he got started, how he built his business, what is the industry today, what is it like, and lessons he's learned along the way. So just a great conversation. Really, really enjoyed this chat. Scott and I have had several chats offline. This one we decided to record and share with you. So this was a lot of fun. So let's get into it. Here's my conversation with speaker... And uh, all around cool cat, Scott Stratton. Enjoy. What's up, my friends? Welcome back to the Speaker Lab podcast. Grant Baldwin here. I'm joined today by my buddy, Scott Stratton, who is a speaker, author, all around good dude, and a very sexy dude. Uh, I'm just going to go ahead and float that out there. He has more hair than I could ever imagine to have, but a great guy, great speaker. I'm honored to have him hang out with us today. So, uh, Scott, how are you today? And that's only the hair you can see. That is good. We're off to a strong start here. Yeah, just just right out of the gates. I like where this is going. We had a conversation on Skype like several weeks ago or something. We, I think it just got connected maybe through some mutual friends and hopped on Skype and talked for like an hour, had a great conversation about speaking and the business and the industry and all that. And we were like, crap, we should have recorded that. That, that was the gold, by the way. It's all gone now. It that is. was the gold. This is the, this is the leftovers. This is where we start talking about body hair right out of the gate. Yeah, exactly. We got nothing left. We already <laughs> But we started at the bottom of the barrel. So that's, you know, the only way it goes up. But that was, it's like that, that's what this industry really needs. Like just candid conversations. Yeah. You know, yeah, like the, sure. that. And I know uh, when we teach, when we do it, we have to do some kind of structure to it. But it's one of those candid conversations come around that things come up and come out. This business is so isolating. Yeah. You know, it's so nomadic. You're so on the road. And it's just this, like this lonely wolf on this, you know, hitting on the plane and then the hotel. And you go down to your talk and then you're back again. And there's most of the time it's really hard for us to be able to swap ideas, swap stories or swap advice where to, you know, and it doesn't go just for speaking, but for anybody in business, yeah. the ability to, to go to people and say, am I crazy? Or, you know, should this, this not happen or this happen? Or what, and that could be travel fees. That could be a speaker bureau thing, a client thing. And you know, that just, it's nice to be able to have those open flowing conversations. I think that's totally accurate that as glamorous and as sexy as speaking may seem, you know, we were talking a little bit about it beforehand that 
it is very lonely. It is very isolating. Uh, I always joke that the large majority of what a speaker does is wait. And so we're waiting backstage. <laughs> we're waiting in an airport, waiting in a hotel room. We're waiting Hurry on up. a plane. Wait. Yeah, we're just waiting. And so even like you were saying beforehand, that 45 minutes on stage, like you cannot compete with that. That is an amazing experience. But the rest of it can be pretty just boring. It's very, un- it would make a horrible, horrible reality TV show. Oh, it did. But that's what I mean. People are like, we should, you should do a show. And I'm like, that would be the lamest thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> it would be, you know, as I used to be in the music business, and I talked to musicians and like, what's it like being on the road? And you hear this thing like road life yeah. and, and road warrior and like all type of stuff. And like, what's it like? They're like, it's 23 hours of monotony for one hour of amazing. And that's really what it is, especially in the keynote side of things, where you walk on stage to 200, 500, 1,000, 5,000 people, and you're like, yes, you know, this is what I wanted to do my whole life. Speaking of myself, I'm like, this is what I was born to be on this stage. And then (laughs) the other 23 hours is getting somewhere and just sitting at gates and, and, and airplanes and hotel rooms and me watching, you know, lockup. On you know, or American Greed on CNBC ordering room service and, right. um, and getting upset that they've taken most of the mini bars out of rooms now. Like that's, and at the end of the day, it's not hard. Like I don't want to be that guy. And this the nice thing about having a private speakers group on Facebook and stuff. You can complain about something that the rest of the world would just <laughs> shoot you in the temple for complaining. About. These gold bricks are so heavy, Scott. Yeah, I, Sixteen Ugh. by nine slides. What's the industry coming to? Like it's just it, nobody cares about that type of stuff. Where. You know, outside of speaking, my commute today was coming into our front study or library. And that's just the worst thing I've ever called a room, by the way, is just a study or a library. But just walking down the stairs, and that was my commute today. So I don't want to – It's you know, stress and stuff is all relative and subjective. But it is that. It's just getting to the next place and getting to the next place and getting to the next place to get to that stage. This is why, you know, I think that speakers are the number one funders of augmented reality or, or hologram. Because you want to – how do we get on stage – without having to travel to the state. That's one of the problems. We love the speaking. We hate the travel. And I've heard you talk about this before, but why is it too that for speakers, we love that one hour that we're on stage, but as soon as that hour is over, we're like, get me out of here. I want to get home immediately. I want to go back to my room. We become these introverted, awkward, shy creatures that just want to go in our hotel. So do you you find that to be the same case? Yeah, all the time. It's like it's I talk about engagement on stage. I'm like, you got to connect with people. I got to go. <laughs> like, not me, though. I'm not talking about me. And I think anything that, you know, when you're you're on your feet. But, you know, for me, I'm a spazzing idiot on stage. I flail and I yell and I'm just I move. I just I, I use everything I've got and I leave it that 45 minutes to an hour. That's everything I've got. And I know. I got about a half hour or 45 minutes after the talk until I'm going to crash. Yeah. I'm just, it's, it's, I know it's coming. Um, you get this high of being on stage. Mm-hmm. I love it. I don't get nervous going before I go on. I don't get anxiety. I don't get, there's nothing buzzing through my veins. I'm the calmest in my life before I go on stage. But afterwards, you're feeling great. You're feeling good. And then you just poof. And I know I got to get to my room or get somewhere else before that happens. And that's the thing is, and I'm an extrovert naturally. So I, I talk with people. I can talk before. I can talk after. I know... It's nice, you know, when you have a book signing after the talk, is just like you feel like a celebrity and it's a great ego boost. But 
you know, a lot of people who are keynotes are actually introverted. Yeah. They're, even people who are over the top. It's great because you're controlling the room. But as soon as you, you know, one of a friend of mine who's an incredible keynote, she won't do the cocktail party afterwards. She's like, I rather I will hide in the bathroom. You know, which is a great technique for most things, anyways, is be on your phone and hide in the bathroom. But she's like, I could talk to two thousand, you know, executives from the stage and kill it. But I don't want to be standing around that cocktail moment. It's, it's true. It's for us. It's the same thing. So you don't want to be that speaker who speaks. You know, that speak and dash. You don't want to yeah. run out the room and leave. And I know it's a value to the audience members. Obviously, if you actually sell something, you know, if you're a consultant or you have a product and obviously staying afterwards is a huge part of that and converting a sale. But for me, I'm done. Yeah. And and it's a really kind of a real contrast. Like for me, outside of my bubble, outside of my digital marketing kind of place where I'm fairly semi, not really, but kind of known if I go speak to accountants or something else, they don't know who I am before I get on stage, but they sure will know who I am when I'm done. And that means before I'm like undercover. Yeah. yeah. Walking around, they see this guy, he looks kind of homeless. They don't know who he is. He's not fitting into the conference. And after sorry for you. Everybody wants you. And that takes a lot. That's what I was going to say was when you're mentioning the, you know, introvert, extrovert and the cocktail party is if you go to the cocktail party before you speak, it's very uncomfortable. And so it's weird. very awkward because it's just like, I don't know these people. They don't know yeah. who I am. They have no, even if you t- say that you're a speaker, oh, that's cute. That's, oh, cute. that's I, cute. My, What are you going to talk about? My nephew's a speaker, <laughs> that type of thing. But after, if you go to the little social gathering after you speak, yeah, it's a different dynamic. But even still, it, it is just exhausting Let's talk about that for a second. Like, why is it that speaking is so exhausting? Because it seems like on paper, you get up, you do a song and dance, you have a lot of fun, you make people laugh, and then you, you're done. So what is so exhausting about it that makes us just physically wipe out afterwards? Well, and that's, I get the point that I make more in an hour on stage than most people in the world. And that is ridiculous to me. This is why I've had an assistant for over a decade, because she quotes the fee. And even from the beginning... I'm like, it's so ridiculous. I can't say it with a straight face. And it's all supply and demand, right? You can only you price within what your supply and demand is in the industry. And the industry almost sets the rate anyways. But it's ridiculous. And that hour is you want to give everything you've got. But it's also travel takes something out of you. Time zones, airplanes, hotels, different beds. It's all that. And there's, that, there's a lot of pressure. Most people outside of, you know, athletes and Broadway and stuff like that is you've got that 45 minutes to an hour. And you can't mess that up. Yeah. And you're the keynote. A lot of times we're talking, people listening, right? You're the keynote. You set the tone or you wrap up the whole thing. You don't get a redo. You don't get a rewrite. Yeah. You don't have the ability to reschedule because you're not feeling well. I've done talks and keynotes. I don't remember because I was so sick. I got a parasite in Istanbul. I was so sick. I got a pair because I ate all the chicken in Istanbul and apparently not the best idea. Yummy. And Allison's a vegetarian. So that's Allison's my wife and partner and everything and co-author and everything else and the co-host of our on podcast. So we get back to Vegas for another gig and she wheels me in a wheelchair to the Bellagio <laughs> to do my talk to the automotive industry. And I get up there and I'm leaning on the podium out of necessity, out of balance. It looks cool. Yeah, it looks like I'm casual. It's a casual Scott. And exactly. I'm like, I don't touch podiums when I go speak. And I got 104, 105 fever. And I am delirious. And I killed it, apparently. Because I got booked for three other events after that. But like, that was great. I'm like, I was dying. I need to Literally. be dying more often, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> it brings out my best. 
So, like, it's you don't get another chance. So there's a lot of certainly a lot of pressure, which causes stress. And then the travel and the going and then getting up there and all the eyes on you, I think that can be real tiring. But then it's also just the people needing something from you. And you couldn't say it better with, you know, showing up before your talk to a cocktail party. I feel like I'm showing up to somebody's birthday party and I don't know the person. Right, right. It's just weird, man. Like, it's just, I stopped going to house parties when I was, you know, 20. I don't just show up to these things anymore because you're a friend of a friend or going to a wedding of somebody you don't know. That's what it, because I might do 70 or so keynotes a year. And so it's a lot of events for me, but everyone I speak at, that's their one event of the year. Yeah. And so this is the event where everybody at the cocktail reception, it's like a family reunion every year. And you're the dude that just walked by the park and noticed they were making hot dogs and showed up, right? That's what that cocktail party is to me, which is why I always tell them, I always thank them for the invite. Awesome. I'll I'll try. I know I'm not going to go. Right. I can't. It makes it weird for them. I want them to have their time. The event's about them. And you don't hear a lot of keynotes say that. You know, it's not about me, but it is. It's about them. I want them to have their reunion, have their fun. And if it works and I can hang out with them afterwards, I usually like to do it at a book signing or a booth or something like that, then great. But the problem is a lot of the times in the post get-together, the cocktail, whatever it's going to be, you become the circus monkey. You know, and it's like, tell me this or tell me that. or, or Tell us another joke. Right. Or you, yeah, exactly. You, you are funny. Right. I heard it. Like I've seen it. Bob Gray is a great speaker from lives up here in Canada and he's in the Guinness book of world records for being able to read phonetically anything backwards. Hmm. And that's if a skill. You, if you give him your date of birth, he'll tell you what day of the week you were born on. And if you name a country, any country in the world, he will give you the square mileage of the country and the population. <laughs> that's awesome. This guy is a genius. And He's hilarious, and he's a phenomenal speaker. And we've done a couple events together. But you know what happens at the cocktail party after? Take a guess. What so awkward. My birthday's this. Tell me. And then he's Zimbabwe. And he's just like, I'm a circus. The people are throwing nickels at me. Like, it's just. Right. And that's where you realize, okay, so I don't want to. You know, my job is to kill it at the keynote. And the problem is the more stuff you pat around that the more could take away from the keynote. Now, because there's, there's also an argument to say you shouldn't really see the keynote before their talk. You know, it creates that suspense. It creates that little bit of celebrity type of stuff. Seeing the bride before the wedding. The bingo, right? And that's sure. where I don't want people to see me in my wedding dress. I don't want, you know, until I'm ready to show them it. And that's the problem because every time I talk to somebody beforehand, they're going to do exactly what you said. They're like, uh, uh, you know, you're a speaker. Oh, so what do you talk about? I'm like, you'll see. I'm like, what do, you want, what do you want me to say? I'm going to yell at you a lot. I don't, I'm going to give it away. Or and it happens at the meal, right? Where you can sit down. It's kind of, you know, it's weird because you sit down and they know you're not one of them. Like, uh, so what are you doing? One I'm, of these I'm, things is not like the other. Yeah. So I started back in the old days, uh, 15 years ago. I was actually a work-life balance speaker, almost like a semi-motivational world. I did a lot in uh, HR circles. And I sat down for an event in Baltimore with a, it was a, um, a hospital, like a St. Mary's or something like that. And I sat at the table before my talk and I sat down and it was five nuns and me. And they're like, hey, I'm like, hi, I'm your hired mouth. I'm here to yell at you all. And the head nun looks at me with her eyes, just barely raises her eyes up. She goes, I hope not too loud. <laughs> we're, well, we're off to a good start. Oh, good. And then it was the worst event in my life. Like the whole talk was terrible. I got a cough and I couldn't stop coughing. It was an award ceremony for long service at the hospital. So I was supposed to do a talk. It was after dinner. 
in an open bar, which is the first and the last time I've ever spoken at that time during the day. And after my talk, I was supposed to stay while they gave out the 76, let me repeat myself, 76 long service awards to each individual. So I just kept coughing at the table, excused myself to go in the hallway and cough, and I left. And I went to Camden Yards and watched an Orioles game. <laughs> <laughs> I had a, uh, the biggest event I did uh, a couple years ago was in the high school and college market. It was a big FFA convention in Oklahoma. There's 13,000. And it was a four-hour session. And they just oh. give away a crap ton of awards. And it's like, we're giving award, 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 award. And now the speaker. And it's like... <laughs> Like, oh, everyone is just mentally fried at that point. And like the awards just go on and on and on. Why is it do you think that so many event planners don't think of those dynamics? Are, are they not aware of it? Do they not care? Do they just have to scram it all in the schedule? You've done some event planning yourself pre-speaking days. So why do you think it is that we oftentimes... Some of them do really well at it. And sometimes we... I don't know. Do you feel like you're ever just set up for failure? Like they just did not think this through at all? Well, first off, I, there's, I know there's never a good time to speak during the day. It's either it's right the first thing in the morning and some people won't show. It's right before lunch. So they're waiting for lunch. It's right after lunch. So they're all getting tired because they just ate or it's right before dinner or drinks or it's right after drinks. So it's like there's always a spot. Yeah. You know, it's always going to be an issue with this spot. And it doesn't matter to me as long as it's not after dinner cocktail hour, which I it's in my contract. I won't do. But one thing I'll never do again and I cannot – stress this enough, being a meeting planner has got to be the hardest, <laughs> worst job in history. Yeah. It's so hard to deal with all these things. And the last thing they're looking at is, does it, will the speaker feel convenient when they're doing a talk? Which, is, which blows my mind is that the fact that I realized as a keynote, I get treated the best out of anybody in that event. And I'm the only one getting paid to be there. Right. I get the nice room. I get the suite. Anything else I can bring you? Can I bring you water? Is it the right temperature? I'm like, holy moly, you're paying me. It should be the other way around. But I always say that every time I see a meeting planner, they have what's called the meeting planner face. And that is if you look in their eyes, on the surface, they're there to help you and smile. But about a half layer inside, they want to murder everybody at the event. <laughs> Because the guy complaining about the Wi-Fi, you know, and only when they get the Wi-Fi back on, they uses the Wi-Fi to complain about the Wi-Fi. You know, <laughs> legally, they should be able to stab them. Like, it's just this, there's so many things going on. It's like planning a wedding with 500 brides and grooms and parents of brides and grooms plus sponsors and keynotes. Like, it's so much in there. It's just like, just to have the conference run is, to me, astounding. Now, these little things that we notice because we're only – I'm only dealing with my hour. Who gives a crap about my hour really because there's so many things going on but I can see that. So when I see in the agenda three or four people that are going to speak before me and say they're each going to speak for two minutes and then you're on and I'm going – uh-oh. So I know they're not going to go for two minutes because nobody's ever spoken for two minutes, especially when they're the governor and then the head of the association and then the sponsor. There's no way they're going for two minutes right. each. And I look at them. And so my job is to anticipate that. Your job as speakers is to anticipate it. And your entire function in life isn't to do a great talk. Your entire function in life isn't to make the audience laugh or cry or clap. Your entire purpose in life as a speaker is to have the meeting planner stand in the back of the room and say, we made the best decision possible. Yeah. That's it. 
So my job is to look at them and say, okay, my time is two o'clock. I have from one till two. Now these speakers that were going before me are going to be going over time. Do I have a hard stop at two or do you want me to speak for the hour? Yeah. Every time. You've got to do that because then they look at, oh, okay, yeah. And I look at them. I'm the only speaker usually getting paid, right? The keynote's the one getting paid at the event. And everybody else is industry and they're doing their concurrence and talks. And they're there for different reasons. But I'm the only one. So I'm like, you guys paid me. What do you want me to do? 45, an hour? And any speaker out there, if you can't expand or contract your talk within a 15-minute buffer, Mm -hmm. you need to be able to do that. You've got to because you on the fly. I've had it once where I had a 40-minute talk. I got up there. In 20 minutes, the guy at the back flashed a five sign at me. Just took me so off guard. Start cutting. Yeah, I'm just like, okay. And I and the, what you cannot do, I beg of you, anybody listening right now, just this, take this one thing away. I know where you're going and I like it. Never let the audience know that you're going to miss out on something or you've screwed up. Yep. So that talk, when it was 20 minutes and they flashed the five, at 25 minutes and zero seconds, I ended it, ba-boom, and they had no idea there was still 20 minutes to go. Yeah. Yep. You can't do that. I've seen it. Oh, the video's not working, so you're not going to see it. But if you did, it would have been great. Or I actually planned for an hour and I got 40 minutes. Nobody cares. Yep. They're there for you to give them what they need. And it actually makes you look unprofessional. The one thing I've always said is that the meeting planner, the event planner, the host, the client, they have a million moving pieces at that event. And so the more self-sufficient that you are as a speaker, the less needy you are, the more responsible you are, the easier you make their life, almost in a joking way, but the easier you make their life off stage, the more leeway you have on stage. Yeah, Meaning oh, that, hundred percent. Like uh, I kind of, I've always joked with my assistant. There's a lot of times we'll get recommendation letters, and they say, "Oh, Grant did a great job. We loved Lisa. She was great to work with. She made our life easy." And I, I joke with her. I was like, "Because you're so good behind the scenes, I could be mediocre, and they would still have a great experience." <laughs> it is at least they only see the hour on stage, right? But what you're dealing with them for months, right? That's why when I have Karen, her actual title here is the coordinator of awesome. Yeah, yeah, and that's her title, and she's been with me over ten years. And there's a reason for that because she knows what I can and can't do, will or won't do, and but also that she's an extension of me. And that goes for anybody's a bureau, and it, anything you involve in it, that's part of it. And that means you also have to do your part. So when I see them, the first thing I want to hear is, Karen's awesome to work with. Yeah. And I hear it every time, and I'm like, I know. <laughs> right? Because I hired my weaknesses. I'm not good at scheduling. I'm not good. The only reason we got this interview today, this talk, is because Karen coordinated it. Otherwise, it wouldn't happen right. because it's, that's not my wheelhouse. I my biggest decision of the most days is just whether or not I wear pants. There I don't. Is. You know, I I am meant to be on stage, and everything else, no, it's not my thing. I can't do it. We have the podcast. We go in. Allison and I record it once, and we're going in tomorrow. So once a month, we record four episodes. And then we have an audio guy. We have a producer. We have a video team. I have hair and makeup. We have post-production. The only thing I do is sit down and talk like a moron, and I'm done. And then every week they come out. I am the bottleneck. We are the bottleneck a lot of the times when it comes to our businesses that we don't want to give it up. For whatever reason that is, it's a cost thing. We can't hire somebody. Well, I hired Karen originally part-time. And before her, I had a virtual assistant. Yeah. So, like, for me, I knew what my strengths were, but every person you brought on board has got to be an extension of you. So then I get there, and then I want to make sure I'm as accommodating as possible. So when I show up a few minutes early for my sound check, 
or you know giving my slides or anything when i show up and early and they're like oh we're so glad you're early and i'm like well is that not a thing and they're like mm, well no speaker yesterday slept through their sound this happened last week another speaker slept through their sound check at this i'm like wow to be amazing at like client services and as, as a speaker you only have to be mediocre because everybody else sucks right right you get you can cause, because once you get up into a certain fee range you really get that diva side of things right whether it's celebrity or athletes or just people who are making five figures to talk for an hour you get this a little bit of an ego going and that's fine by the way i have no problem with i think this in, we have to have some it's a fine line between ego and confidence right you know confidence and arrogance is a very blurry area and I once had an interview with somebody in the speaking industry, and they said, name me a couple of amazing speakers in your world of what you talk about. And I said, me. And he said, what, you want me to write that? And I'm like, yeah. if I don't think I'm the best choice for that event, why am I taking their check? Yeah. You've got to be able to get on stage and say, I was meant to be here. You don't need to be meek or shy or whatever that's going to be. You just took their money. You've got to be the best choice. I'm not saying I'm better than everybody else, but I'm saying that I am a top choice in this industry because I took your money. One of the things I really liked about what you said too is the idea that whenever you're going to speak anywhere, it's a privilege, it's not a right. And, and so you're not God's gift because you showed up there, that you are there to serve the client. And so if you are hired to do an hour and all of a sudden it gets cut to 45 minutes or there's circumstances within the venue that just aren't to your liking or whatever happens, as much as it may feel like you're the star of the show, you're not the star of the show. You're there to provide the service, to provide value to that client. And even like you said earlier, although we think we are being hired because we're an amazing speaker, we're being hired primarily to not embarrass the client. We're there to make sure they look good or there to, whenever they have their debrief meeting, that their boss comes to them and said, when you hired Scott, that was the best thing you did this conference. That's really what you're going for as a, as a speaker. Which way the money flows? Did you get paid? They're, that means they're the client, not you. Yeah. And there's ways to word things. My whole job is to be friends with the AV team at the mm -hmm. back, yep. behind the curtain. And I always tell them, if I see you guys laughing at my talk, I win. Because you guys see everything, and every talk, and you just you kind of just dull it out and don't, you don't even listen. So if I get you guys going, I know I've, you're the most jaded people I know. And I think that we look at it and say, okay, well, I'm the keynote. I'm doing this. and that. Well, you, you walk in there like a diva. Why would you mess with the people that try to make you sound or look good? Right. You know, it's, just, it's a dangerous. Yep. And I get uppity sometimes when they ask for slides ahead of time or they ask me to come down for a sound check three hours or four hours ahead of time. And I get over it because I'm just like, okay, don't be that guy. And I get there. But if there's a problem, there's ways. It's just tact. It's just having tact. If there's a, I don't like podiums in the middle of the stage. I don't like podiums in small. I don't use a podium. And you know, there was a podium at an event I did a few weeks ago. The stage was massive, but it had a little catwalk out the front of it a bit, yeah. which I would love to strut on a catwalk any day. Come on. But they put the podium right at the end in front of the catwalk, so it literally could still block this giant stage. And I'm like, can we move that at all? Can we shift it? Because it's now, it's also in my contract. It says in my contract they signed no podium on stage. And I have these demands because I have experience yeah. and I know what works and what doesn't. I'm not demanding a certain temperature water. I'm not demanding certain linens. I'm just saying I, I want this talk to go as great as possible. Here's a few thoughts. And I only have a few. No podium on stage. No live Twitter screen in the background. That's about it. That's pretty much my two demands. And so, But I, you can either walk in there and say, damn it, it's in my contract. You need to take this podium down or you can say, can we shift it to the side a bit because it's going to really affect the sight lines of a lot of the audience. Yeah. yeah. 
There's just different ways to handle things. How often do you find that even though those things are in your contract that they actually get done? <laughs> well, it's the reason why Ozzy asked for brown <laughs> M&Ms, right? You know, that's yep. – he didn't even eat them. The road manager put that on there to say if they missed that, what else did they not pay yep. attention to? Yep. And that's the whole thing about ours. And I think some – but again, it's back to the event organizers. They have 16,000 things going on. And I'm not sure they're always concerned about the Diva keynote that says I demand bottled water with the top unscrewed. You know, whatever that is, which I've seen, by the way. So I just think that we don't have to to be that person. We don't have to be that person to to diva it up. And my job is to make sure they've done it. So you go down before you're due to talk. You look at the room. You realize, okay, you talk to the crew. I want a lab instead of a handheld. And sometimes they're going to say, all we have is handhelds. And then you deal with it. Right. If you, have, if you can only use a lab and it's the only thing you never use in your life, then you better bring your own damn lab. Right. Do an event and make sure it hooks up. If you have a computer and the dongle and you need to use your laptop, you better make sure it works. Yeah. You know, if you have a clicker and you bring your own clicker. So what I check for is especially things like, and this happens probably once every three or four gigs, is I need to be in control of the slides. Yeah. So because I go back and forth, back and forth, and I, you know, I'll jump around and, and everything, every talk's different a bit. So timings and timing for me, especially when you use humor, yep. timing is essential. And so when I click that button, I need to know that slide instantly will change because I'm, it's my punchline. Yep. And a lot of these times with a perfect cue system, they're going to say, well, no, it's just a cue and then I'll press forward. And I'm like, you, and I, again, it's in my contract, but I'd be nice about it. I'm like, I need it actually directly in the laptop because of this. Those three like, dead seconds killed the joke. Oh, a hundred percent. It's just, it, and it's my show, meaning not mine as in I'm selfish, meaning I'm the one sitting there flapping in the wind if it doesn't work. Right, right. The tech guy isn't. Right. None of those guys are on stage. I'm the one on stage. If it doesn't sound or look good, I look bad. So my job is to get down there early, make sure to check everything. And when they say, no, we can't put it directly in, I need to understand the technology enough to say, actually, it does. I, I'm more than happy to show you. And I can show you how it works. Or I'll bring my own cue. I'll bring my own I have one in my bag. I'll have it for two reasons. One, if theirs doesn't work and something goes wrong. And two, if that situation happens, I'm like, don't worry, I can use my own to advance the slides. And I've never had to use my own. I've had to say that twice. And they're like, well, let me check if it, see if it works. And I know why they don't want to have it directly in it because people who speak who aren't speakers will press the button by accident. Or have you ever seen the, the perfect cue, the clickers that have the black tape on them right, that right, right. the back button so you can't press it like it's i realize when they and they walk me through they're like okay this is the forward button this is and i'm here's how you my turn the microphone on yeah my mind's like i get it but i realize for them to have to walk me through what one button means means they've had to deal with somebody not knowing what that is right so you have to have some empathy with it as well how did you get into speaking what were you doing beforehand oh i've been speaking since i could speak and you know, I think that's how I got through high school and college was that I had the ability to stand up in front of the room and talk because I certainly wasn't a scholar, you know. And uh, I remember my one of my profs in college, I, I, you know, I got A's on all my talks. And my last year, my final year, she's like, "I'm going to partner you up with Tracy, and I know you can get an 80 on a talk without even prepping, and I want you to get 100% on this one." But she does work; she's a hard worker, and I want you to plan. I want you to just knock it out of the park. And so, sure enough, the presentation came along. I hadn't practiced or rehearsed or anything else, and got 85. And she's like, "You didn't even try, did you?" I'm like, "Nope." <laughs> like the amount of effort you want me to put in for that extra 10% ain't gonna be there. Like it's just so. Na I I had one where we did a group presentation of four of us. I didn't even know what we were talking about. I said, "Hand me the sheets. I'll put them down on the table. Let me talk." And I just went. And I've always had that. I've never been 
nervous. I'm missing a synapse in my brain that says be nervous in front of other people. And I, I, I know that's rare. So then went into I did so I graduated from college. I was in human resources. And I went into human resources. But I also the reason why I went into HR was because I wanted to be a trainer. I knew training and development was underneath HR. But my prof had a great piece of advice, and he, she said, go general first. Do everything first. Because in two years from now, when you want to change your job, if you're only a trainer, the only thing you'll be qualified to do is train after that. Yeah. And it's the first thing to get cut. It's the first thing to lose their budget. I'm like, okay, so I got a general. And then two years into that, I got a job as a national sales training manager for a packaging company. And I flew around North America training people how to sell bubble wrap. Let me, yeah, <laughs> let, me, let me say that again for everybody who's listening here. I flew around North America. People are perking up like, whoa, 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 what? Training people how to sell bubble wrap. Like if you think whatever you sell is hard, I sold air. <laughs> I trained how to sell air. Wrapped in plastic though. Oh, dude, it's just. And I had to convince that our air was better than somebody else's air. Like so, talk about selling a commodity. Like that was uh, so we got into consultative kind of selling and that type of stuff. And we're not going to discount five cents on a roll of bubble wrap. We're going to save you ten grand in breakage on your shipping. Ah. And this is fifteen years ago. And even back then, the interesting side note to it: like Amazon back then was still the ideal client. Everybody wanted Amazon yeah. because they had just started building like these distribution centers in Kentucky. We're like, you get that account, you're set. And now, obviously, you see more things get shipped now in packages than ever before. So my job was to go do that training. And when that was going on, I was also doing my own thing. And I started doing my whole thing. It was called Work Your Life. And I noticed in these office spaces and all these places I worked that you know everybody lived for the weekend. Yeah. And when they retired, they enjoyed it. I didn't believe that. And so I started doing speaking. And... So you got this guy who's 24 years old, <laughs> which I realize how ridiculous being 41 now, how ridiculous it is a 24-year-old trying to tell people how to enjoy their lives. Right, right. You know, but that was my thing. It was work your life. And what happened was I made a slideshow video 15 years ago called The Time Movie. And it was just pictures and cheesy text coming across it and cheesy music. And I launched it and it went viral. And it got 4 million views in the first week. Wow. And 15 years ago, 4 million views is like 4 billion today. Right, right, right. And it went insane. And my inbox went, but so I had a landing page after the movie. And this is pre-YouTube days and pre-broadband. So the, the file had to be under a Megan size. Wow. And so we had it made and I did it. And I got 360,000 subscribers to my Jeez. newsletter. And so I'm like, I win. I'm the king of the world. And then I realized, oh, what am I going to do now? Here's the thing. Here's how it started. So before I got all the subscribers, they started coming in. But at the time, I didn't have an email uh, subscription for uh, AWeber or Constant Contact or Emma or anything. I was here (laughs) to listen to this. I was manually adding people to my Outlook. Ow. Wait wait for it. Outlook Express. Ah, yes. (laughs) That's awesome. Manually adding people to a group <laughs> to the point where it just shut my computer down. I tried to send something and it, I was BCCing everyone. BCC everyone, yep, yep. But I wanted to save the 15 bucks a month. Yeah. And then I'm like, okay. So then I used an open source thing that would help send the mail. And the open source people banned me. From the most welcoming community in history on the internet, they banned me because I was breaking their stuff. So then I finally went to a service and I started doing that. And then I realized, okay, so then I started building. That's when I got the 300-something thousand people. 
And then I started getting speaking requests because, hey, I just put myself out there as this work-life balance speaker. And this message went so bananas. I got, in a two-week span, 97 requests for speaker kits. Wow. Now, this is the, the day where you would put your cassette. VHS. VHS into the bubble mailer and your one sheet. And so I'm, <laughs> and then your TVD, I'm printing Avery labels mm-hmm. off. And I sent out three kits and then didn't send out the other 94. I got so overwhelmed. And I had a product called Relaxation on Demand. It was a CD and each track was a different situation in life. So whatever was stressing you out, I talked about it. One was driving, by the way. Never make a relaxation CD about driving. <laughs> it's a lawsuit waiting to happen. I sold over $100,000 of that CD. You know how many I mailed out? <laughs> Probably not very many. Zero. And I refunded everybody. Because I was doing the Avery CD Stomper label on each one. I had a four times burner. Yeah. So it would take 27 minutes per CD to burn. I wasn't ready for success at all. I wasn't prepared for it. And I remember one phone call I got. It was like, hey, we're from the Swan and Dolphin Resort, Disney World. I don't know who you are, but my boss saw your video and she wants me to bring you down here. So just send us an invoice and tell us when you can come. <laughs> that was the call. That's crazy. And I went down and did the event. So... But here's what happened. It blew up and the word got around this happened. So people wanted their own videos. So then I, that's when I started on marketing. And I started and I created these videos for other people. And we ended up making 60 videos for 60 different clients and we got 60 million views of these things. And we guaranteed 50,000 views a video. And that's how we did it. So if you've ever seen one of those cheesy slideshow videos in the past 15 years, good chances that we made it. What? The Time Movie, The Dash Movie, the, all these movies, we made them. What did you do to get bookings like pre-video? Because it's—I mean—it's great if the video does blow up, and it sounds like you were—you know—you were able to catch that lightning in a bottle. But pre-that, when you were going, okay, I'm just getting started. I have a talk that is okay. I'm getting booked occasionally. What are you doing to get bookings? Where are you finding bookings? How's that working for you? Yeah, that's always the hardest spot to be, right? When you start. And you have no platform. You have no following. Yeah. To do so, my first ever event outside of training, because I was a trainer, so I went to talk in the company. I booked a room at our local library, and it was going to be my work your life talk. Yeah. And you do what anybody else does. You fill it with family and friends. Yeah. And that's so. What happens was, I originally wanted to get my foot in the speaker industry, so I put a ad in the Speaker Net News, which is one of the oldest online speaker newsletters out there and I put an ad saying I could help design your presentations because I was really good at PowerPoint and I knew there was a lot of bad PowerPoint so we actually called it uh, I think it was pop or something like that I can't remember what it was but I offered to help design and design things so somebody had written to me Ann Coombs was a speaker in Canada and she wrote and said yeah what's your rates for and I looked at her stuff and I'm like wow she's a good speaker and she's got a book and all this stuff and I said well how about I barter with you you show me the ropes in the industry and I'll design your PowerPoints She's like, you're on. So she brought me to an event. I met some other people there. They asked me to come speak at their event six months from now. I'd open the door. And then I took that event, told them about my own public event. I did it. And I hired a broadcast camera crew to come in to film it because I know I needed a demo. So I hired them. This is, remember, back then you had to hire somebody with a camera. There was no phones. There was no, nothing like that. And I got it ready. It was a great room a nice neutral color of walls for the film and everything else. And I walk in to the room the day of the event and they had painted the walls pink. (laughs) And I was wearing a burnt orange dress shirt. Nice. 
I got to send you the, you got to put it up on these. You got to give people a link that's listening to the, I have a picture of it and it's brutal. And we had like 20 people showed up. And I think three of which were in the yoga class afterwards, but they were just there anyways. And I did my talk and I did it. And my next talk after that, somebody was there, told somebody else. I did a talk in our local mall in the food court for like this education week. Wow. And I got heckled by people on the second floor, students on their lunch break, and the New York fries person working in the food court shaking her head. And okay, you got to start, man. We, you, and that's where I just did it. And I knew that every time I talked, I got better. And that was, I knew I needed footage. And just, it's not different today. Right. You know, I wouldn't go back into the same room with the pink and the burnt orange or the food court. But there's two things you'll learn. You know, one, you're going to stink at the start. And two, you're going to bomb eventually. You know, it's going to happen somehow. And I kept that in mind and I realized I'm just building it. Now, the viral thing really shot me up the ladder really quickly um, after that. But it was still learning my craft. You know, I thought I was the bee's knees back then. I look at it, I watch it now. I'm like, oh, that's, that's not good. Well, I, mean, I look like, at myself five years ago. I'm like, ah, it's terrible. Well, I think that's the case with like any of the marketing materials or websites or demo videos or, or the talk itself. And at the time, you one of the things I always say is like you do the best with what you have and improve as you go. And so my very first demo video, my very first website, they were horrible. They were embarrassingly bad, but it worked. And so you work with what you've got. It books you for a few gigs for, you know, a couple thousand dollars here and there or 500 bucks or a thousand bucks or whatever it may be. And you kind of leverage those into better events and you improve your marketing materials. You improve the talk. But I think that you know, the key point there is like you just, you start somewhere. And so that means that in order to do the big events for thousands of people, you have to do food courts. You have to do libraries with random people that are showing up. And those are the events that really help you to get better, to work on your material, to become a top-notch speaker. You're not ready to get paid five figures. Like You don't deserve it. Right. And this is the thing that kind of throws me is that people think, well, they're owed something or they're entitled to this talk. And people look at, and I, I had, I did a conversation with, with a speaker a few weeks ago and he's like, well, I want to, you know, raise my fee to, I'm making 4,000 right now and I sh I'm, I'm going to be quoting 10. I'm like, why? What have you done to get that? Yeah. And he's like, well, you know, and, I, and then he somehow roundabout way had to mention me. And I'm like, slow down here, Sally. Like I make 20,000 a keynote and I get 20,000. What you don't see when you hear that, and this is what gets me going and gets me angry. People promise the riches of keynotes. They don't show the work. And like in math class in grade 10, show your work. And I want, if you want to see my work, it's that food court talk. It's that 20 person and 16 of them are my family talk. It's even when I went into the marketing world. So I started talking about marketing in 2010. Like I really started doing talks then. I did 30 talks in 10 weeks when I launched on marketing for the book for zero pay. I had no money. The recession hit. Nobody wanted to pay 10 grand for a motivational slideshow anymore. I didn't see it coming and I did no marketing to build my platform. I was lazy. So I had no clients, zero. Yeah. And I'm traveling North America on the speaking tour, hoping that my credit card goes through to get the withholding on the room I'm staying in. And I do 10 weeks for zero, just so they bought 100 books. And then I did 43 talks for five grand. And then I did 37 talks for 7,500. And then, like, so you see, people want that. It's like anything in life, right? They want that, the golden ring. They want that thing. And I'm like, yeah, you can get it potentially. You're willing to do what it takes. Nobody owes you anything. Nobody owes you a talk. 
you're not even a speaker. You are the person I want to be at my event. You're an expert who speaks. You're just somebody who's also great on stage. And I know my talent is talking. I know I'm good at what I do, but nobody owes, I'm not owed that. I'm not entitled to that. And who knows next year, you could have zero gigs. It's part of the industry. What are you doing today? This is why we write the books to stay relevant. That's my biggest fear as a speaker, to be honest with you, is is not about getting gigs or not, or not about bombing on stage. It's, it's not thinking people think I'm relevant anymore. Right? That's the scary part. That's what scares me, is not my ability to talk and not my ability to stay on top of my industry and getting up there. It's, it's people don't think, well, he's just not relevant anymore. What do you do today to stay relevant? Or for someone listening, going like, I'm just getting started. I'm not relevant. How do I become relevant? Well, you mentioned the book thing. You know, book is one method to get there. What, like, what else works just to stay relevant? You know what, like if we say book is one and then something else is number two, but the book is so far ahead is number one. You think so? Still today? For keynoting, yes. Not for workshops, not for concurrence, not for, but if you want a paid keynote, to me, because I know I see meeting planners in the business world, so in business speaking, to have a book puts you so far ahead of everybody else. When you're not known, by the way. So if you're somebody knows you or you're on a TV show or you got this, then it's a different conversation. But I know my books, we have four of them, got me in the door in the majority of my talks. What has he done? That's what they ask. What has he done? Well, he's written four books with Wiley, with a traditional publisher through this. And everybody's a best-selling author. I get that. But it's all gone through that door. They're like, oh, okay. He's automatically valid to us. That's just table stakes. That's just getting in the door. Yeah. You know, it's not, I can't say, well, he's got Twitter followers. It, doesn't, it hurts you now. It doesn't yeah. do anything for you. That book is, I can't understate how important, because it's now, it's your knowledge, and it's a 240-page brochure for my brain. And they want to bring that, because then they, not only convincing them, because they can see the clip, you know, they can see your clips online. And I, that's also, to me, number two, is having that, the clip, the story, the video, because you people hire speakers they've seen speak. Right. People can write a great book or they can write a great blog post or they can do, but getting on stage is different. Right. And especially in a keynote nature that when I used to book speakers 20 years ago, that they either had incredible content and terrible delivery or great delivery, but they had no content. Yeah. And if you can find both of those, that's important. So the book opens the door and then your face, you know, your mouth, your stage presence kills it. And not even needing a demo reel to me. I don't have a demo reel classically. I have stories. So when the QR codes kill kittens clip I've got, that's my rant about QR codes, has 160,000 views. Can you name me another speaker demo video that has over 100,000 views? It doesn't exist because that's the story. So therefore, people who aren't booking speakers share it. And then once every thousand people, somebody who books a meeting sees that. But it goes viral within everybody, not just like a meeting planner. Nobody watches speaker demo videos unless you're a speaker watching somebody else's demo or once in a while a, a meeting planner. So none of my – if you go to my site, you can see that. I have a full talk and I have four clips of stories. That's it. But people – like either way, whether it's the story or whether it's a, you know the, in the demo format or whatever the format is, people need to see you speak. Oh, need yeah. to, need to get that sense of, you know, like like you're a good example of you visually put off like this tough guy persona, but whenever I watch you speak, it's like oh he's a normal funny charismatic dude, and so mm-hmm. people need to see that video to make the connection of if I put this person on our stage in front of our audience, 
what would that look like? Like I always say, it's it's kind of like a, a movie trailer. You know, you take a 90-minute movie, you boil it down to two or three minutes. And within those two or three minutes, you have a good idea of who's in it, what the plot is, what the theme is. If it's, you know, if it's funny, is it lighthearted, is it dark? What is it? And that's exactly what you, even a two or three-minute story. And I've watched, you know, several clips of your stories. And within those two minutes, I get a pretty good idea of what the other... 58 minutes of a keynote would be like, and it would help me as a decision maker to determine, are you a fit or not? Is this a good person to bring to, you know, to our event? And I want them to do that before they reach out to us. Yeah. Like almost as equally, I want somebody to say, that's not for us. It's going to waste our time. That's my talk. And if you don't, I've had people say, well, we wear a suit. Can you talk about this instead? And the answer is always no. This is what you get. And people self-qualifying or self-disqualifying is important. Because then you just can't be that speaker for everybody. You don't want to be. You never, ever answer the question. When somebody asks, what do you speak about? Never answer anything. What never do you say, speak about? What, do you, what do you need? Well, I could speak about anything. That's Nobody wants that. Right. Don't. You need that expert who speaks. For me, I speak about sales and marketing and the train wrecks that come along with them. And how not to be one of them. That's my world. It's, yeah. That's how it works. And people, well, you do this, your social media, or you can do this. And I wanted to disruptive. And I'm like, this is what I talk about. And this is, go watch it. As Allison tells people, he's on the internet all over the place. <laughs> Just go, what, what were you expecting? So when I get on a call and somebody says, can you do this? I'm like, have you not been on the internet? Like, this is what I do. I, this is how I talk. This is what I do. And no, I won't wear a, a suit. And that's, for me, like you said, how I look and how I present myself, that's just me. Yeah. I don't have a brand strategy of Scott. I'm lucky that I'm the boss of me. And this is what I am. I wear a same thing on stage every time. I wear a pair of True Religion jeans and a James Purse polo and my Doc Martin boots. And people are like, oh, look at that. He's badass. I'm like, no, 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 no. The Doc Martins are for my back because they're really well made and my back gets sore. I'm like, the least badass thing you can think of wearing them. <laughs> they're really well made shoes, the boots. They're amazing. People are like, well, that's, yeah, but that's your thing. I'm like, no, it's Scott. And who's you? What's Grant? What's Jay? What's these? Like, that's, they know that you're not getting me somewhere else. And that's good and bad. People are like, I can't deal with them or that. I'm like, okay, I can't, I can't control that. Hey, let's wrap up with this. You touched on an example earlier, but one of the things I always like to ask speakers whenever they, they, they come on the show is tell us about a time where it couldn't be worse than this. You mentioned the nun story. What else? Give us another situation or example where it just went off the rails, the talk bomb, the environment was horrible, whatever. Give us one of those nightmare situations so we know we're not alone. Three weeks ago. Two weeks ago. Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. I go on stage. I go on at 1.30. And I usually do opening keynotes. It's like 90% of my things because I'm so hyper. So I do opening. I don't eat before I talk. It's not because of nerves or anything else. I just don't, I don't eat breakfast usually, but I don't eat before I talk. I don't want stuff in my teeth. I don't want indigestion. So I wake up and I'm in Saskatchewan, different time zone. So I wake up at 7 a.m. And my talk's at 1. So I don't eat before 1. And I decide I have a huge amount of time before my talk. Why don't I go get a deep tissue massage for 90 minutes before my talk? Because that makes sense. That loosens you up. Yeah, so it loosens me up, releases all these toxins in my body. I get on stage delirious at 1.30. You think I'd know. I've done 300 talks in five years. I think I'd, I'd understand this. I walk on stage. I'm delirious. I'm saying words I don't mean to. <laughs> and one of the things is I talk about Allison on stage sometimes and because I adore her. And so I usually say she's the smarter one and the funnier one and the more intelligent one. So I try to say in my brain she's the funnier and the smarter one. And instead, I say, and Allison is the farter. (laughs) And then I just stop. 
and I look at the audience, and I'm like, did, did, did I, I just call my wife <laughs> farter? And the whole place erupts. Of course, they tweet to her and let her know. <laughs> and I'm like, and I, and the thing is, I never stop in the middle of talking. Like, I roll with it. I've been doing this so often. If I say a wrong word or anything else comes out wrong, I'm just going to roll, and the audience doesn't even know what happened. Like, that's me. My job is to be a professional on stage yeah. and just keep going. The show must go on. And I just went, did I just say that? And it was just... But at the same time, like, I think this is going to be the case with you. Like, those moments of the moment, you're just like, oh, that was awkward. But at the same time, you're like, I love those real, raw, oh, authentic moments. Because you can't it, recreate that moment. Like, if you tried to do the farter line again, it just wouldn't come off the same. You connect with the audience. Now, like, 15 years ago, when I was running my training company, I was talking. I had an event. I was doing a lunch and learn or like a two-hour workshop. And people came into the room and said, we need to take the conference room over for a minute. Scott, hang on a second. And 30 people filled the room and they said they announced their recently retired CEO suddenly died and he was beloved. Whoa. With his picture, by the way, his painting on the wall, his face. He's that beloved. People just start hysterically crying. And I walk up to the person who, my contact there, I'm like, I can continue this uh, another day. She's like, no, 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 no. You can finish. Keep going. Oh. And they cleared out the room except for the 10 people getting trained. And I'm like, what? (laughs) Oh. That's brutal. What? Like that. So there's that was tough. Like you know, so the farter thing was hilarious. That was hard. And yeah. At the end of the day, just always, always remember anybody listening right now. Sometimes it's not going to go well. Yeah. Yeah. Bulb's going to go on the projector, or the mic's going to be fuzzy or, or crackling or whatever it's going to be. As long as you've done your part and you've given everything you've got, be professional. You can walk away with your head held high. Now, if it's your fault, you didn't prep, you didn't get it right, or you didn't deliver, then go home give the check back and keep your head held high. Yeah. Yeah. Indeed. All right, man. Well, I appreciate you uh, hanging out with us, sharing your story, your journey, some lessons you've learned along the way. If people want to find out more about you, if people want to uh, check out what you're up to online, where can we go? Unmarketing everywhere. So every platform, pretty much. That's the book. That's the site. It's the name. And the Unpodcast every Wednesday comes out, the business show for the Fed Up with me and Allison. Beautiful. We will link up to all of the above and uh, send people that way. So enjoy the chat, buddy. All right, there you go, my friends. Hope you enjoyed that chit chat chatteroo with Scott Stratton. Really good stuff there. Hey, as always, feel free to stop by thespeakerlab.com where you can check out the show notes, links, everything we discussed in today's episode. You can find all of that goodness and goodies there again over at thespeakerlab.com. So definitely check that out. Also, let me just quickly remind you that we do on a regular basis have online free workshops teaching you all about how to find and book speaking engagements. So if you haven't joined us for one of those, definitely make sure you register for that. You can go to the speakerlab.com. Excuse me. No, 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 no. You need to go to freespeakerworkshop.com. There it is. Freespeakerworkshop.com. That's where you're going to find the registration to uh, join. Again, that's a totally free. That's the title. Freespeakerworkshop.com is where you're going to want to go. All right, my friends, that wraps up episode 77. We'll catch you next time. You're awesome.